Let's pray again. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Uh, We thank you that you, Lord Jesus, know us very intimately and know what it is that we uh, flirt with that threatens to draw us away from you. And we thank you, Lord Jesus, that through your spirit you do not let us wander, but you make us aware of that thing. And you give us the strength to leave it behind. I pray, Heavenly Father, that you would do that work in us now. Show us your son, Jesus Christ, the beauty of the king and of his kingdom. Fill us with such an awareness of his grace and his mercies that we would be willing to leave everything for him. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. This morning we again have two brief parables that are different in their imagery but similar in meaning. We have the story of the hidden treasure and the story of the pearl of great value. And in a chapter full of stories describing the nature of God's kingdom, neither of these stories really do that. Instead, they explain the proper response to the kingdom and assume that the immense hope and beauty of God's kingdom is already understood and appreciated. Listening to Jesus' stories about the pearl and the treasure, you get the feeling that whatever the kingdom of God is, it must be pretty great if a, a man would joyfully, joyfully sell all of his belongings in order to have that one thing alone. And that's what these dramatic responses insinuates and suggest. Both men sell everything they have in order to possess the kingdom alone. And if that is true, then the kingdom must be pretty glorious, right? And it's a masterful method of storytelling that Jesus employs to make the kingdom attractive to his listeners without ever having to actually describe it to them. The attraction to the kingdom of God is implicit in these stories. But there is a story told in, in Mark's gospel which I think explicitly illustrates the beauty and immense hope of God's kingdom when it's realized on earth. And visiting that story will help us to understand better the the drastic and dramatic response of the men in Jesus' stories and perhaps respond in kind ourselves. And the story I'm referring to is the story of a man who was possessed by many demons. And this man lived in a persistent state of misery. At one time, people had tried, him to, tried to help him overcome his demons, but they were unsuccessful, and eventually they gave up on him altogether. Their failure turned their compassion into fear and hatred. And this man, therefore, lived cut off from society, and he, he took up residence in a graveyard, and he spent more time amongst the dead than he did the living. He himself probably wished himself dead, He was a tortured soul. He ran about naked and would often cut himself with rocks in order to relieve some of the pain that was destroying him from within. But there was no relief. He despised himself. He was despised by the world. And consequently, he assumed that God must despise him as well. 
Jesus approached this man one day and his response to Jesus betrayed his suspicion about God. Jesus approached him and this man yelled out, do not torment me. In his own self-hatred, reinforced by the world, he assumed an antagonism on God's part towards him as well. But Jesus looked on the man and was, was deeply grieved by his condition. In compassion, Jesus healed the man and he, and he set him free from the demons that possessed him and had ruined his life. In a moment, he was changed. And there is this one line describing him after his transformation at the hands of Jesus that I believe illustrates perfectly the beauty and latent hope of the promise of God's kingdom. The townspeople who had given up hope on the man respond to the reports that something has happened to him. And the text tells us that when they arrived, they came to Jesus and they saw the demon-possessed man sitting there, clothed and in his right mind. Sitting down, clothed and in his right mind. What happened? He had an encounter with the king. And the kingdom of God had come in this one man. For wherever the king goes, there is his kingdom. The two are inseparable. And this man had an encounter with the king and was ushered into God's kingdom. And it's this picture, the picture of a man formerly tormented and and miserable, possessed by things that ruined him, isolated from everyone, hating and being hated, but now sitting down, calm, unrestrained, clothed, and in his right mind. This picture captures perfectly the hope and promise of God's kingdom when it is realized in this world. And we are invited to see ourselves in this man who in one way or another represents the whole of humanity and creation itself in our state of misery. Close your eyes and picture him formerly tormented and thrashing about naked, screaming and bleeding from self-inflicted wounds, but now clothed and calmly sitting there in his right mind. Close your eyes and imagine him to feel the hope that emanates from him. This is the hope of God's kingdom. And that man represents the lonely. In him are those people who are confused in body or mind. In him are the ashamed and the guilty. In him are those possessed by something or the pursuit of it. In him are those who attempt to heal by doing harm. In him are the angry. In him are the hopeless and the marginalized. In him are the distressed in spirit and disturbed in soul. In him are those suspicious of God and fearful of him. In him are those enslaved by their pursuit of freedom apart from God. In him is a creation that convulses and lashes out under humanity's rapacious appetite. In him, we see ourselves. And in him, we discover the incomparable hope promised in the kingdom of God when it is realized in this world. In him, the kingdom of God came. 
And his new reality is the future that the king invites us into as well. You see, Jesus invites us into a kingdom where everything that was once chaotic and and painful is now at rest and made whole. You enter into God's kingdom through an encounter with Jesus Christ, the king. King and kingdom are inseparable and synonymous. Wherever the king is, there is the kingdom. And wherever the kingdom of God is, there is a world of sanity and restoration, forgiveness, healing, reconciliation, and true freedom. The king offers nothing short of this in his kingdom, and no one else is offering the same. The kingdom of God is beautiful and glorious, and the proper response to this vision of the kingdom is both divestment from the world and investment in it. The one who desires to be a citizen of God's kingdom, to be found clothed, sitting down at rest and in their right minds, will both divest or or separate themselves from the world and also invest in its welfare. And I understand I'm saying contradictory things here, so let me explain myself. Here's what I mean. Anyone who desires to be found clothed, sitting down, set in order in their right mind as citizens of God's kingdom, whenever Jesus returns to make all things new, whoever longs for the the joy and relief of living in a renewed earth absent the influence of sin and the corruption of humanity's heart, whoever desires these things must seek to encounter the king above all things in this world. He is the hidden treasure and the pearl of great value. His worth is beyond compare. If you desire the kingdom, then you must seek to encounter the king. And not just a single encounter either, but a daily one. In the gospels, Jesus calls the saints to follow him, to abide in him, to seek him. And these verbs don't describe a a single decision made under peer pressure at a Bible camp. These words describe an intentional restructuring of your life to foster a pursuit and a thirst and a hunger for Jesus. These words describe prayer in the early hours of the morning before others are awake, reading scripture before your email. These words describe praying the Lord's prayer at noon when your spirit is sagging and your resolve is weak. These words describe lying in bed at night and recounting the faithfulness of God and giving him praise for sustaining you through the day. These words describe waking up in the morning with the resurrection on your mind, pondering the resurrection from the dead and praising him for that hope because that's exactly what we reenact every night. Every night we go to sleep and in our sleep we mimic death. But in the morning, God commands both us and the sun to rise. To quote the Book of Common Prayer, he turns the shadow of death into the morning. And he wakes us up in the power of the resurrection every day. Think about that the next time you first set your feet on the floor. He is raising you to new life just like he will whenever the time comes for you to be laid down, not in a bed, but in the ground. If you are a Christian, 
and you desire to possess the beauty and the hope that the kingdom promises, then you must make abiding in Jesus Christ your first and foremost priority. He is the hidden treasure and the pearl of great value. You must be willing to give up whatever it is that you love. You must be willing to take drastic steps to prove your allegiance to the king. And this will surely mean that you'll have to act in ways contrary to your friends, the general culture, even other Christians who do not struggle in the same way that you do. Sure, maybe you can compete with the psychologists and and sociologists on the other side of your web browser whose sole goal is to suck you in further and make more money for themselves, but I can't. So that requires me to be weird in the eyes of the world. But I'm praying more as a result, and I'm far less anxious. In the Gospels, Jesus, time and again, would be in a conversation with a person, and he would put his finger on the thing that they loved most. And he would tell them, you have to be willing to leave it if you're going to follow me. In a conversation with a rich young man, Jesus told the man after he had expressed a genuine desire to follow Jesus, to go and sell all of his possessions, give the proceeds to the poor, and then come and follow him. And the rich man went away sorrowful, the text tells us, because he had many possessions. You have to be willing to leave what you love. He, he may not require that you actually leave it in the end, but you have to at least be willing to do so. Often he will press you to the point where you will have to prove your willingness to leave what you love in order to follow him. And even after you've proved your willingness, sometimes he'll ask you to leave it still. But other times he'll let you keep it now that he knows you're willing to leave it for his sake. Abraham was allowed to keep Isaac, but his willingness to sacrifice his own son, his raising of the knife, his willingness demonstrated his faith and his ultimate love for God over even the life of his own son. Hannah was not permitted to keep her child. For years she wept because she didn't have a son, but it's only when she promised to give the child to God as a servant in the temple that God gave her the son she wanted so badly. She arrived at the place where her love for God trumped her desire for a child, and only then was she given a son, Samuel, whom she saw only once a year because he lived and served in the temple as she had promised. Abraham kept his son, uh, Hannah, Hannah did not. That's why the general sentiment that all Christians should just sell all their belongings is too simplistic. It doesn't actually match the biblical witness. But keep it or not, you have to be willing to leave what you love. And that's right, we're we're even talking about children here. I, I mentioned Hannah and Abraham. That's how extreme we're talking. We're not just talking about the love of bad things, but good things as well. It's possible to love even good things too much. And the love of anything too much, even children, even your children, is idolatry. When laying out the cost of discipleship in Luke 14, Jesus flat out says, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. 
What he is saying here is that for anyone seeking to follow Jesus, your love for him must be so great that your love for your own family and for your own life will look like hatred in comparison. As I mentioned Abraham and Hannah and the rich man whom Jesus told to sell everything, I I wonder what it is that, that makes you sorrowful to think about forfeiting for the sake of following Jesus. What is it that you love too much? One way to find this out about yourself is by answering a second question, where do you spend your time and money? Those are typically reliable tells. We're mysteries to ourselves, but time and money are clues that help us learn about ourselves, particularly what it is that we love. What is it that you love too much? Are you willing to leave it? Jesus does not permit competing allegiances. Because those with competing allegiances tend not to follow him, abide in him, or seek him throughout the day. Those with competing allegiances tend to trust their own morality and goodness while pursuing a career that makes them lots of money. But we enter the kingdom through the goodness of the king and you can't purchase his grace. He doesn't give one flip about your morality or your money if you're a stranger to him. Those with competing allegiances tend to quietly drift at the slightest inconvenience. Make no mistake about it, everything else is happy to share your allegiance with Jesus because a a shared allegiance is a victory for everyone but Jesus. He demands all of you and he's worth it. The promise of his kingdom is worth whatever you have to give up in this life. The peace and joy of living in that place will eclipse your, loss, eclipse your losses in this life 100 times over. But this must be believed in faith. Keep this man clothed, sitting down and in his right mind ever in your sight. The pain of the sacrifice is real. The isolation and fear of being left out being considered weird, is real. But preach to yourself daily the words of that old hymn, Be still my soul. Thy Jesus can repay from his own fullness all he takes away. Remind yourself and remind each other of the hope that is in you on account of the king and be weird if that's what it takes. Pursuing the king and his kingdom requires great sacrifice and effort. It requires even a certain level of daily desperation. Desperation seems a bit much, doesn't it? Not when you consider the omission of Jesus Christ himself. I can do nothing on my own, Jesus said. His reliance on the Father was astounding considering the fact that he was God. But we live a whole day, sometimes days on end, without even lifting our eyes to heaven. We've got this. Apparently, we're stronger than Jesus himself. I I know I'm being a bit forward here. That's partly because I'm preaching to myself, really. But I do want to turn a bit here to provide some practical answers for what you can do to foster a sense of desperation as you seek to abide in Jesus, our King. The important thing is that you commit to doing something and that the something you commit to to doing isn't heroic. You will only be discouraged by heroic goals that are quickly jettisoned because they were unrealistic from the start. Don't do something heroic. Here are two things that have been a help to me. You may decide to do something different, and that's okay. The first is the daily office in the Book of Common Prayer. 
or the BCP for short. The daily office is simply a structured time of prayer scattered throughout the day, in the morning, at noon, in the evening, and before bed. And the beauty and effectiveness of the daily office is that each time of prayer does not take a long time, but you pray frequently. And the other beautiful thing is that the prayers are written for you, so that whatever your mood, the the set prayers draw you in and even teach you how to pray. This is a rich resource for the saints that I'd be happy to introduce you to if you're interested. I'd also encourage you to come to our evening office service on Wednesday nights at 6 p.m. in the sanctuary. Not only will you get a chance to pray with other saints struggling to seek Jesus too, but every week we celebrate the Lord's Supper in which we are fed by the risen Jesus Christ and strengthened in our faith. The other thing that's been a help to me is to, to worship bodily. I know this is a very un-Presbyterian thing, but there are some things that Presbyterians really need to change. I will hold my hands out when I'm praying or I'll kneel. And it's amazing how what you do with your body affects the posture of your heart as well. When I'm overwhelmed either with joy or defeat, temptation or sorrow, I'll cross myself as a sort of physical prayer to remind myself that I belong to Jesus and it is his cross on me, his cross that defines me and nothing else in this world. Already we we stand and sit throughout the service, but when I offer the benediction, you can hold out your hands in a receptive posture. Pauline often says that when speaking isn't enough, you sing. And when singing isn't enough, you dance. In other words, an increase in bodily movement helps to convey and encourage the affections of your heart. I worship physically, and it increases my dependency on and desperation of Jesus. I do these things because it's not enough to merely divest oneself from the world without also investing in habits and practices that give life because they keep us abiding in the King. If you recall at the beginning of this service, I said the proper response to the king and his vision of the kingdom is both to divest oneself, to separate oneself from the world and to invest in the world for its good. And it's necessary that I say briefly what I mean by investing in the world for its good before we end. The divestment from the world that Jesus calls for is a divestment from the influence of this world over your affections. It's a a reprioritization so that your love for Jesus is stronger than anything else in this world. But it would be a mistake not to remind ourselves that the plan of God is to restore earth. History does not end with the saints flying away to live a spiritual disembodied existence in heaven far from it. History ends with, with heaven coming down to earth so that heaven and earth are one. To put it another way, the the kingdom of God, which we now witness only in brief glimpses, will be fully realized on earth as it is in heaven. Earth will be made new and glorious. Therefore, God does not call his saints to abandon this earth, to simply divest oneself from the earth, from the world, but to invest in it. The church must be free from the influence of the world, but committed to its flourishing. And you can only really be committed to the flourishing of the world if it does not have some hold on you and you therefore love it without reason. 
G.K. Chesterton writes in his book, Orthodoxy, the man who is most likely to ruin the place he loves is exactly the man who loves it with a reason. The man who will improve the place is the man who loves it without a reason. If a man loves some feature of Pimlico, an, an area of London, for those of you who are as unfamiliar with London as I am, if a man loves some feature of Pimlico, he may find himself defending that feature against Pimlico itself. But if he simply loves Pimlico itself, he may lay it waste and turn it into the New Jerusalem. As Christians, we are called to love the place where God has set us, merely because he tells us that it's his. It belongs to him, and he intends to build his kingdom here. Therefore, as Christians, we seek the welfare of the city, wherever God has put us, just as Jeremiah encouraged the exiles living in Babylon of all places. Seek the welfare of, your, of the city, for in its welfare, you will find your own welfare. And because the world has no hold on us, because we have divested ourselves from it and do not love it improperly, we are able to turn it into the new Jerusalem, into God's kingdom with God's help. You see, the kingdom of God comes when we not only divest from the world, but invest in the city by doing whatever God has given us to do, but for the sake of the city and not for our own advancement or reputation. The kingdom of God comes when the accountant, the teacher, the mechanic, the engineer, the politician, the stay-at-home parent, the, the waiter, the lawyer, the student, all of these do their work divested from the world, but for the sake of the city and the joy that they are fulfilling Jesus' command and bringing together heaven and earth in this world. We work dutifully and diligently because we possess the hope that we will catch a glimpse of the kingdom breaking into this world, a moment when heaven and earth are one, a sign of things to come. When you leave this place and you enter back into the world, go as divested yet invested people and surely you will taste the kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.